0: Section sixty-one of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume One by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Johnson's Introduction to the Thrales, Anno Domini seventeen sixty-five, Old Thrale, type e. fifty-six. This year, footnote see Appendix F, end footnote, was distinguished by his being introduced into the family of Mr. Thrale one of the most eminent brewers in England, and Member of Parliament for the borough of Southwark. Foreigners are not a little amazed when they hear of brewers, distillers, and men in similar departments of trade, held forth as persons of considerable consequence. In this great commercial country, it is natural that a situation which produces much wealth, should be considered as very respectable, and no doubt honest industry is entitled to esteem. But perhaps the too rapid advance of men of low extraction tends to lessen the value of that distinction by birth and gentility which has ever been found beneficial to the grand scheme of subordination. Johnson used to give this account of the rise of Mr. Thrale's father. He worked at six shillings a week for twenty years in the great brewery, which afterwards was his own. The proprietor of it had an only daughter who was married to a nobleman. It was not fit that a peer should continue the business. On the old man's death, therefore, the brewery was to be sold. To find a purchaser for so large a property was a difficult matter, and after some time it was suggested that it would be advisable to treat with Thrale, a sensible, active, honest man who had been employed in the house, and to transfer the whole to him for thirty thousand pounds. Security being taken upon the property, this was accordingly settled. In eleven years, Thrale paid purchase money. Note. Mr. Blakeway, in a note on this passage, says, The predecessor of old Thrale was Edmund Halsey, Esquire. The nobleman who married his daughter was Lord Cobham. The family of Thrale was of some consideration in St. Albans. In the abbey church is a handsome monument to the memory of Mr. John Thrale, late of London merchant, who died in 1704. He describes the arms on the monument. Mr. Haywood, in Mrs. Piozzi's autobiography, volume 1, page 9, quotes her marginal note on this page in Boswell. She says that Edmund Halsey, son of a miller at St. Albans, married the only daughter of his master, old child of the anchor-brew-house southwark and succeeded to the business upon child's death he sent for one of his sister's sons to london my mr thrale's father and said he would make a man of him and did so but made him work very hard and treated him very roughly he left him nothing at his death and thrale bought the brewery of Lord and Lady Cobham. End of footnote. He acquired a large fortune, and lived to be Member of Parliament for Southwark, but what was most remarkable was the liberality with which he used his riches. He gave his son and daughters the best education. The esteem which his good conduct procured him from the nobleman who had married his master's daughter made him be treated with much attention, and his son, both at school and at the University of Oxford, associated with young men of the first rank. His allowance from his father after he left college was splendid, no less than a thousand a year. This, in a man who had risen, as old Thrail had, was a very extraordinary instance of generosity. He used to say, If this young dog does not find so much after I am gone as he expects, let him remember that he has had a great deal in my own time. The son, though in affluent circumstances, had good sense enough to carry on his father's trade, which was of such extent that I remember he once told me he would not quit it for an annuity of 10,000 a year. Not, said he, that I get 10,000 a year by it, but it is an estate to a family. Having left daughters only, the property was sold for the immense sum of 135,000 pounds, a magnificent proof of what may be done by fair trade in no long period of time. A New System of Gentility, Anno Domini, 1765 There may be some who think that a new system of gentility might be established upon principles totally different from what have hitherto prevailed. Footnote. Mrs. Burney informs me that she heard Dr. Johnson say, An English merchant is a new species of gentleman. He perhaps had in his mind the following ingenious passage in The Conscious Lovers Act four scene two, where Mr. Sealand thus addresses Sir John Beville give me leave to say that we merchants, are a species of gentry that have grown into the world this last century, and are as honourable and almost as useful as you landed folks that have always thought yourselves so far above us. For your trading, forsooth, is extended no farther than a load of hay or a fat ox. You are pleasant people indeed, because you are generally bred up to be lazy. Therefore, I warrant your industry is dishonourable. Boswell. The Conscious Lovers is by Steele. I never heard of any plays fit for a Christian to read, said Parson Adams, but Cato and The Conscious Lovers. And I must own, in the latter there are some things almost solemn enough for a sermon. Joseph Andrews, Book Three, Chapter Eleven, End of Footnote. Our present heraldry, it may be said, is suited to the barbarous times in which it had its origin. It is chiefly founded upon ferocious merit, upon military excellence. Why, in civilized times, we may be asked, should there not be rank and honors upon principles which? independent of long custom, are certainly not less worthy, and which, when once allowed to be connected with elevation and precedency, would obtain the same dignity in our imagination. Why should not the knowledge, the skill, the expertness, the assiduity, and the spirited hazards of trade and commerce, when crowned with success, be entitled to give those Flattering distinctions, by which mankind are so universally captivated. Such are the specious, but false arguments, for a proposition which always will find numerous advocates, in a nation where men are every day starting up from obscurity to wealth. To refute them is needless. The general sense of mankind cries out with irresistible force. Un gentilhomme est toujours gentilhomme. Footnote: In the first number of the Hypochondriac, Boswell writes, "It is a saying in feudal treatises, semel baro, semper baro. Once a baron, always a baron." London Magazine, seventeen seventy-seven. He seems at times to mark his sense of Mr Thrale's inferiority by speaking of him as Thrale and his house as Thrales. He never, I believe, is thus familiar in the case of Beauclair, Burke, Langton, and Reynolds End of A new home for Johnson I fifty six Mr. Thrale had married Miss Hester Lynch Salisbury of Good Welsh Extraction, a lady of lively talents, improved by education. Footnote. For her extraction, see Haywood's Mrs. Piozzi, Volume 1, Page 238. End of footnote. The Johnson's introduction into Mr. Thrale's family, which contributed so much to the happiness of his life, was owing to her desire for his conversation is very probable and a general supposition, but it is not the truth. Mr Murphy, who was intimate with Mr Thrale, footnote. Miss Burney records in May 1779 how one day at Streatham, Mr Murphy met with a very joyful reception, and Mr Thrale, for the first time in his life, said he was a good fellow for he makes it a sort of rule to salute him with the title of scoundrel or rascal. They are very old friends, and I question if Mr Thrale loves any man so well Madame d'Arblay's diary, end a footnote. Mr Murphy, who was intimate with Mr Thrale, having spoken very highly of Dr Johnson, he was requested to make them acquainted footnote. From the Garrick Correspondence, volume 1, page 116, it seems that Murphy introduced Garrick to the Thrails. He wrote to him on May Thirteenth, 1760, You stand engaged to Mr. Thrale for Wednesday night. You need not apprehend drinking, it is a very easy house. End footnote. He was requested to make them acquainted being mentioned to johnson he accepted of an invitation to dinner at thrale's and was so much pleased with his reception both by mr and mrs thrale and they so much pleased with him that his invitations to their house were more and more frequent till at last he became one of the family and an apartment was appropriated to him both in their house in Southwark, and in their villa at streatham Footnote. Murphy, Life, page ninety-eight, says that Johnson's introduction to the Thrails contributed more than anything else to exempt him from the solicitudes of life. He continues that he looks back to the share he had in that business with self-congratulation, since he knows the tenderness which from that time soothed Johnson's cares at Streatham and prolonged a valuable life. Johnson wrote to Mrs. Thrale from Litchfield, on July twentieth, 1767, I have found nothing that withdraws my affections from the friends whom I left behind, or which makes me less desirous of reposing at that place which your kindness and Mr. Thrale's allows me to call my home. Piozzi Letters. From Mull, on October fifteenth, 1773, he wrote, Having for many weeks had no letter, my longings are very great to be informed how all things are at home, as you and mistress allow me to call it. Ibbid. Miss Burney, in 1778, wrote that, Though Dr. Johnson lives almost wholly at Streatham, he always keeps his apartments in town. Madame d'Arblay's diary. Johnson, works volume 8, page 381, tells how, in the house of Sir Thomas Abney, Dr. Watts, with a constancy of friendship and uniformity of conduct not often to be found, was treated for thirty-six years with all the kindness that friendship could prompt, and all the attention that respect could dictate. He continues, A coalition like this, a state in which the notions of patronage and dependence were overpowered by the perception of reciprocal benefits, deserves a particular memorial. It was such a coalition which he formed with the Thrales, A coalition in which, though the benefits which he received were great, yet those which he conferred was still greater. End Mr. Thrale, Anno Domini, 1765. Johnson had a very sincere esteem for Mr. Thrale as a man of excellent principles, a good scholar, well-skilled in trade, of a sound understanding, and of manners such as presented the character of a plain, independent English squire. Footnote. On this, Mrs. Piozzi notes, No, no, Mr. Thrale's manners presented the character of a gay man of the town. Like Millamont in Congreve's comedy, he abhorred the country and everything in it. Haywood's Piozzi Mrs. Millamont, in the way of the World Act 4, Scene 4, says, I loathe the country and everything that relates to it. End footnote. As this family will frequently be mentioned in the course of the following pages, and as a false notion has prevailed that Mr. Thrale was inferior, and in some degrees insignificant, compared with Mrs. Thrale, it may be proper to give a true state of the case from the authority of Johnson himself in his own words. "'I know no man,' said he, who is more master of his wife and family, than Thrale." If he but holds up a finger, he is of aid. Footnote. It is but justice to Mr. Thrale to say that a more ingenuous frame of mind no man possessed. His education at Oxford gave him the habits of a gentleman, his amiable temper recommended his conversation, and the goodness of his heart made him a sincere friend. Murphys Johnson, page 99. Johnson wrote of him to Mrs. Thrale, He must keep well, for he is the pillar of the house. And you must get well, or the house will hardly be worth propping. Piozzi Letters, see Post, April 18, 1778. Madame d'Arblay, Memoirs of Dr. Burney, gives one reason for Thrale's fondness for Johnson's society. Though entirely a man of peace, and a gentleman in his character, he had a singular amusement in hearing, instigating, and provoking a war of words, alternating triumph and overthrow between clever and ambitious colloquial combatants, where there was nothing that could inflict disgrace upon defeat. End of Mrs. Thrale, Eytard, 56. It is a great mistake to suppose that she is above him in literary attainments. She is more flippant, but he has ten times her learning. He is a regular scholar, but her learning is that of a schoolboy in one of the lower forms. My readers may naturally wish for some representation of the figures of this couple. Mr. Thrale was tall, well-proportioned, and stately. As for Madam or my Mistress, Putnet, in like manner he called Mr. Thrale Master or my Master. I hope Master's walk will be finished when I come back, Piozzi letters. My Master may plant and dig till his pond is an ocean, Ibid, C. Post july the ninth seventeen seventy seven and a footnote madam or my mistress by which epithets johnson used to mention mrs thrale she was short plump and brisk footnote. miss burney thus described her in seventeen seventy six she is extremely lively and chatty and showed none of the supercilious or pedantic airs so scoffingly attributed to women of learning or celebrity. On the contrary, she is full of sport, remarkably gay, and excessively agreeable. I liked her in everything except her entrance into the room, which was rather florid and flourishing, as who should say? It is I, no lesser person than Mrs. Thrail, However, all that ostentation wore out in the course of the visit, which lasted the whole morning, and you could not have helped liking her. She is so very entertaining, though not simple enough, I believe, for quite winning your heart. Memoirs of Dr. Of footnote. She has herself given us a lively view of the idea which Johnson had of her person, on her appearing before him in a dark-coloured gown. You little creatures should never wear those sort of clothes, however. They are unsuitable in every way. What? Have not all insects gay colours? Footnote. Mrs. Pionzi's Anecdotes, page Boswell and footnote. Mr. Thrale gave his wife a liberal indulgence, both in the choice of their company, and in the mode of entertaining them. He understood and valued Johnson without remission, from their first acquaintance to the day of his death. Mrs Thrale was enchanted with Johnson's conversation for its own sake, and had also a very allowable vanity in appearing to be honoured with the attention of so celebrated a man. Nothing could be more fortunate for Johnson than this connection footnote johnson wrote to mrs thrale on october thirteenth seventeen seventy seven i cannot but think on your kindness and my master's life has upon the whole fallen short very short of my early expectation but the acquisition of such a friendship at an age when new friendships are seldom acquired is something better than the general course of things gives man a right to expect. I think on it with great delight, and I am not very apt to be delighted." Biodzi letters. Johnson's friends suffered from this connection. See post March the 20th, 1778, where it is said, that at Streatham he was in a great measure absorbed from the society of his old friends. He had at Mr. Thrale's all the comforts and even luxuries of life. His melancholy was diverted, and his irregular habits lessened by association with an agreeable and well-ordered family. Footnote. Yet one year he recorded March the 3rd. I have never, I thank God, since New Year's Day, deviated from the practice of rising. In this practice, I persisted till I went to Mr. Thrale some time before Midsummer. The irregularity of that family broke my habit of rising. I was there till after Michaelmas. Hawkins's Johnson, page four, five, eight, note hawkins places this in seventeen sixty five but johnson states *Present meditations page seventy one i returned from streatham october first sixty six having lived there more than three months he was treated with the utmost respect and even affection the vivacity of mrs thrale's literary talk roused him to cheerfulness and exertion even when they were alone. But this was not often the case, for he found here a constant succession of what gave him the highest enjoyment. The society of the learned, the witty, and the eminent in every way, who were assembled in numerous companies, called forth his wonderful powers, and gratified him with admiration to which no man could be insensible boswell wrote to temple in seventeen seventy five i am at present in a tourbillon of conversations but how come you to throw in the thrales among the Reynoldses and the beaucler's mr thrale is a worthy sensible man and has the wits much about his house but he is not one himself perhaps you mean mrs thrale Letters of Boswell page 192. Murphy, Life, page 141, says: "It was late in life before Johnson had the habit of mixing, otherwise than occasionally, with polite company. At Mr. Thrale's, he saw a constant succession of well-accomplished visitors. In that society, he began to wear off the rugged points of his own character. The time was then expected when he was to cease being what George Garrick, brother to the celebrated actor, called him the first time he heard him converse, a tremendous companion. Johnson's Shakespeare published anno domini seventeen sixty five. In the October of this year he at length gave to the world his edition of Shakespeare. Footnote. Johnson wrote to Dr. Wharton on October the ninth. Mrs. Wharton uses me hardly in supposing that I could forget so much kindness and civility as she showed me at Winchester. Wool's Wharton, page three o nine. Malone on this remarks. It appears that Johnson spent some time with that gentleman at Winchester this year. I believe that Johnson is speaking of the year seventeen sixty two, when on his way to Devonshire he passed two nights in that town. See Taylor's Reynolds. It was in seventeen forty five that he published his Observations on Macbeth as a specimen of his projected edition. In seventeen fifty six he issued Proposals. Undertaking that his work shall be published before Christmas, seventeen fifty-seven. On June the twenty-first, seventeen fifty-seven, he writes, "I am printing my new edition of Shakespeare." On December the twenty-fourth of the same year, he says, "I shall publish about March." On March the eighth, seventeen fifty-eight, he writes, "It will be published before summer." I printed many of the plays. In June of the same year Langton took some of the plays to Oxford. Churchill's Ghost parts 1 and 2 was published in the spring of 1762. On July the 20th, 1762, Johnson wrote to Baretti, I intend that you shall soon receive Shakespeare in October 1765 it was published. End of his edition of Shakespeare, which, if it had no other merit but that of producing his preface, in which the excellencies and defects of that immortal bard are displayed with a masterly hand, the nation would have had no reason to complain, footnote. according to Mr. Seward anecdotes. Adam Smith styled it the most manly piece of criticism that was ever published in any country. A blind, indiscriminate admiration of Shakespeare had exposed the British nation to the ridicule of foreigners. Footnote. George the Third, at all events, did not share in this blind admiration. Was there ever cried he, such stuff as great part of Shakespeare. Only one must not say so. But what think you, what? Is there not sad stuff, what, what? Yes, indeed, I think so, sir, though mixed with such excellencies that, ha! Oh, he cried, laughing good-humouredly, I know it is not to be said, but it's true, only it's Shakespeare and nobody dare abuse him. Madame d'Arbelay's diary. End of Johnson, by candidly admitting the faults of his poet, had the more credit in bestowing on him deserved and indisputable praise, and doubtless none of all his panegyrists have done him half so much honour. Their praise was like that of a counsel, upon his own side of the cause. Johnson's was like the grave, well-considered and impartial opinion of the judge, which falls from his lips with weight, and is received with reverence. What he did as a commentator has no small share of merit, though his researches were not so ample, and his investigations so acute as they might have been which we now certainly know from the labours of other able and ingenious critics who have followed him that, that johnson did not slur his work as has been often said we have the best of all evidence his own word i have indeed he writes works volume five page one five two disappointed no opinion more than my own yet I have endeavoured to perform my task with no slight solicitude. Not a single passage in the whole work has appeared to me corrupt, which I have not attempted to restore, or obscure, which I have not attempted to illustrate. End he has enriched his edition with a concise account of each play and of its characteristic excellence. Many of his notes have illustrated obscurities in the text, and placed passages eminent for beauty in a more conspicuous light. And he has in general exhibited such a mode of annotation as may be beneficial to all subsequent editors. Footnote. Stevens wrote to Garrick. To say the truth, the errors of Warburton and Johnson are often more meritorious than such corrections of them as the obscure industry of Mr. Farmer and myself can furnish. Disdaining crutches, they have sometimes had a fall, but it is my duty to remember that I, for my part, could not have kept on my legs at all without them. Yarrick Correspondence Johnson's preface and notes are distinguished by clearness of thought and diction and by masterly common sense. Cambridge Shakespeare. Footnote. Dr. Kenrick, I type 56. His Shakespeare was virulently attacked by Mr. William Kenrick, who obtained the degree of L.L.D. from a Scotch university, and wrote for the booksellers in a great variety of branches. Though he certainly was not without considerable merit, he wrote with so little regard to decency and principles and decorum, and in so a hasty a manner, that his reputation was neither extensive nor lasting. Good night. Kenrick later on was the gross libeller of Goldsmith, and the far grosser libeller of Garrick. When proceedings were commenced against him in the court of King's Bench, in square brackets for the libel of Garrick, he made at once the most abject submission and retraction Paras Goldsmith. In the Garrick correspondence is a letter addressed to Kenrick in which Garrick says I could have honoured you by giving the satisfaction of a gentleman, if you could, as Shakespeare says, have screwed your courage to the sticking-place to have taken it. It is endorsed. This was not sent to the scoundrel, Dr. Kenrick. It was judged best not to answer any more of Dr. Kenrick's notes, he had behaved so unworthily. End footnote. I remember one evening, when some of his works were mentioned, Dr. Goldsmith said he had never heard of them, upon which Dr. Johnson observed, Sir, so he is one of the many who have made themselves public without making themselves known. Footnote. Ephraim Chambers, in the epitaph that he made for himself, had described himself as multis pervulgatus paucis notus. Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 10, page two, six, two. A young student of Oxford, of the name of Barclay, wrote an answer to Kenrick's review of Johnson's Shakespeare. Johnson was at first angry that Kenrick's attack should have the credit of an answer, but afterwards, considering the young man's good intention, he kindly noticed him, and probably would have done more, had not the young man died. Johnson's attack on Voltaire, Anno Domini seventeen sixty five. In his preface to Shakespeare, Johnson treated Voltaire very contemptuously, observing upon some of his remarks, "These are the petty criticisms of petty wits." Footnote: Johnson had joined Voltaire with Denison Rhymer. Dennis and Rymer think Shakespeare's Romans not sufficiently Roman and Voltaire censures his kings as not completely royal. Dennis is offended that Menenius, a senator of Rome, should play the buffoon and Voltaire perhaps thinks decency violated when the Danish Usurper is represented as a drunkard but Shakespeare always makes nature predominate over accident. His story requires Romans or kings, but he thinks only on men. He knew that Rome, like every other city, had men of all dispositions, and, wanting a buffoon, he went into the Senate House for that which the Senate House would certainly have afforded him was inclined to show an usurper and a murderer not only odious, but despicable. He therefore added drunkenness to his other qualities, knowing that kings love wine like other men, and that wine exerts its natural power upon kings. These are the petty cavils of petty minds. A poet overlooks the casual distinction of country and condition, as a painter satisfied with the figure neglects the drapery johnson's works volume five page one o nine johnson had previously attacked voltaire in his memoirs of frederick the great in these memoirs he writes voltaire has asserted that a large sum was raised for her in square brackets the queen of hungary's succour by voluntary subscriptions of the english ladies it is the great failing of a strong imagination to catch greedily at wonders he was misinformed and was perhaps unwilling to learn by a second inquiry a truth less splendid and amusing Ibid., volume six page four five five See post october twenty seventh seventeen seventy nine and a footnote voltaire's reply i type fifty six Voltaire, in revenge, made an attack upon Johnson in one of his numerous literary sallies, which I remember to have read, but there being no general index to his voluminous works, have searched in vain, and therefore cannot quote it. Good note. Voltaire replied in the Dictionnaire Philosophique. J'ai jeté les yeux sur une édition de Shakespeare donné par le Samuel Johnson. J'ai vu qu'on y traite de petits esprits les étrangers qui sont étonnés que dans les pièces de ce grand Shakespeare, un sénateur romain fasse le bouffon, et qu'un roi paresse sur le théâtre enivrant. Je ne veux point soupçonner. Monsieur Johnson d'être un mauvais plaisant et d'aimer trop le vin, mais je trouve un peu extraordinaire qu'il compte la bouffonnerie et l'ivrognerie parmi les beautés du théâtre tragique. La raison que l'on donne n'est pas moins singulière. Le poète, dit-il, dédaigne ces distinctions accidentelles de conditions et de pays, comme un peintre qui, content d'avoir peint la figure, néglige la draperie. Leur comparaison serait plus juste si parlait d'un peintre qui, dans un sujet noble, introduirait des grotesques ridicules, peindrait dans la bataille d'Abel Alexandre le Grand Montès Anne et la femme de Darius buvant avec des goujardes dans un cabaret. Johnson perhaps had this attack in mind when in his life of Pope, works volume 8, page 275, he thus wrote of Voltaire. He had been entertained by Pope at his table when he talked with so much grossness that Mrs Pope was driven from the room. Pope discovered by a trick that he was a spy for the court, and never considered him as a man worthy of confidence. Of Voltaire was an antagonist with whom I thought Johnson should not disdain to contend. I pressed him to answer, he said perhaps he might, but he never did. Mr. Burney, having occasion to write to Johnson for some receipts for subscriptions to his shakespeare which johnson had omitted to deliver when the money was paid he availed himself of that opportunity of thanking johnson for the great pleasure which he had received from the perusal of his preface to shakespeare which although it excited much clamour against him at first is now justly ranked among the most excellent of his writings to this letter johnson returned the following answer to Charles Burney, Esquire, in Poland Street, sir, I am sorry that your kindness to me has brought upon you so much trouble, though you have taken care to abate that sorrow by the pleasure which I receive from your approbation. I defend my criticism in the same manner with you. We must confess the faults of our favourite to gain credit to our praise of his excellencies. He that claims, either in himself or for another, the honours of perfection, will surely injure the reputation which he designs to assist. Be pleased to make my compliments to your family. I am, sir, your most obliged and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, October sixteenth, 1765. Resolutions at Church from one of his journals I transcribed what follows. At Church, October 65. To avoid all singularity. Bonaventura. Footnote, he was probably proposing to himself the model of this excellent person, who for his piety was named the Seraphic Doctor. To come in before service, and compose my mind by meditation, or by reading some portions of scriptures. Teddy, If I can hear the sermon, to attend it, unless attention be more troublesome than useful. To consider the act of prayer as a reposal of myself upon God, and a resignation of all into his holy hand. End of section 61